Welcome to episode 92 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we're proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What is going on? Man, Jesse, it is such a beautiful day out. And I spent most of it fixing a lawnmower and mowing a lawn, which was nice. It's nice to get out and do a little bit of manual labor, but I would have loved to like, I don't know, do something fun outside. There's that common grace. Thorns and thistles, man. Yeah. It's a little bit of both. That's good stuff right there. Well, speaking of that, I'm guessing you've got some stuff to affirm or deny this week. I've got some stuff to affirm and deny. So how about we get to it? Let's get to it. So I'm starting out kind of a, kind of an old school style affirmation of sort of a recommendation. So I've been using this app on my phone that I believe is only available for Android. So sorry, uh, Apple fanboys, but, um, it's called save my time. And what it does, I've been on like this time tracking kick and sometimes I go a little crazy with it. And so like, you know, you get an app where like you can enter different categories and you have to start and stop it. And I get like really neurotic, but this one works a little bit different. So you set up broad categories on your phone. And then every time you unlock your phone, it asks you what you've been doing since the last time you unlocked your phone or since the last oh, that's time. That's intense. So it's, it's kind of automatic tracking, but it's not quite as, um, the resolution on it is not quite as narrow, but for me, that's actually been helpful because if it's too narrow, then I focus on like perfection in tracking. And then if I like forget to track something, I get all frustrated. So since this is kind of baked into it is, is more averages and more general numbers, it actually works a little bit better. So it's called save my time. Um, like I said, I've been on this kind of time tracking kick because I've been on this kind of productivity kick. And one of the first things they say you need to do when you sort of start working on productivity is track your time because that helps you see the places that you're wasting time. And it helps you get us an idea of like, what, what are you spending your time on? And then you can kind of go from there to say, well, what can I, what can I narrow down? You know, you find out that you're watching like the office for 15 hours a week and you realize that's a little, a little out there. You can drop maybe like to like six hours a week and be less out there as an example. I, I love that somebody is using that and pulling up the results and being like, oh my goodness, I had no idea I was spending 15 hours a week watching The Office. This is a shock to me. Yeah. Well, Ashley and I are going back through it again and she's been watching more of it than me, but it probably is not that far off to think that we've watched 15 or 16 hours of The Office over the last week. Well, I was going to make this get make us get real and ask you where is the space where you're wasting the most time, but is that it? Um yeah, I mean, I haven't I haven't been doing the tracking for super long, um maybe just a couple of days. So, uh, you know, for me, it's it's time that I can't necessarily recover because it's like I look at how much time I'm commuting. So, I went to the grocery store today to do some grocery shopping. And I was at the store for an hour, but I was also driving to the store for and back for an hour. So, you know, but that's one of those things that while I know that I'm going to have an hour of commuting time, I can load up podcasts or lectures from RTS or something like that. And at least in part, redeem the time a little bit. Or the mega feed, the mega society reform podcasters. There's like 300 hours worth of (laughs) podcasting that just got dumped on everybody's phone. Shameless plug. You're welcome, people. You are welcome. Yeah. If you got uh, 
300 or so episodes of Society Reform Podcaster podcast. First of all, thank you for subscribing to the mega feed. Second of all, sorry that I filled up all the memory on your phone. We redid the feed uh, from the Society of Reform Podcasters website, and I was able to grab a lot of the episodes of like Two Thieves before they started with the network. I found a good way to like grab those without me having to go and do all of it manually. So uh, unfortunately, the downside of that, I mean, maybe it's not unfortunate. Maybe you love listening to their early stuff. Uh, but the downside of that is that every single subscriber gets every single episode again. So hopefully that won't happen again. The The software should keep it from happening again in the future, but it happens once in a while. It's not a big deal. Sorry, not sorry. Yeah, what are you affirming this week? I'm also going to kick it old school, if that's what we're calling it, and go with a recommendation in my affirmation. So Arthur Clark has these three rules of technology or three laws. Yeah. Uh, one of them is anything sufficiently advanced, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Sure. So here's a website that I find pretty magical and you might think it's lame, but it's flightradar24.com. Are you familiar with this site? I am not. So this is a live air traffic tracker. It'll show you every commercial and private airplane or air transportation vehicle that is in the air. And if you have a particular call sign, like you're tracking a flight for a loved one, you can just drop it in there. You can click on anything that's in the air and it will show you like its path, where it's going and, and where it's been. So this site is awesome because I've used it a couple of times. And here's what made me think about it today is we actually don't live that far from a prison. Yeah. And a couple of months ago, there was this like weird conspicuous helicopter that was kind of circling around. So I went out to air the flight radar24.com, found the helicopter over about, clicked on it and saw like it was the path was like somebody took an etch a sketch and just went wild with it. And so it turned out that there was actually some kind of a felony that occurred and they were searching for this, this dude, but this is like just a great waste of time uh, per your recommendation to stop wasting time. <laughs> if you want to waste more time, this is like an awesome website because at the very least, if you want to get freaked out by the number of planes that are in the air at any given time, even over your location, this is where you want to go. So flightradar24.com is pretty awesome. All right. I can see that there's a small plane um, that was going from Messina, I don't know which airport that is, to Boston, pretty much right over my head now. Yeah, I'm telling you, it's awesome. I, it's magical because I'm not sure how this all works and why it works. But like you said, if you click on it, you can see like its speed, what type of plane it is, the airport's oh, to yeah. and from, and then its path where it's been. So it, and it's, it is real time. So it's a pretty cool thing. That is cool. I, I have this Magic. weird feeling that this is, is like, I cannot believe that this is just publicly available. Exactly. That's why it's magic. Man. Whoa, this is a question mark. There's a question mark on a flight. That's strange. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's such Interesting. a great waste of time. This question so, mark is moving 121 knots. Which is yeah, a, so before this comes like the reformed flight radar cast, what do you got in terms of denials? I'm, I got to close this tab or it's going to distract me the entire time. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, so I am denying having to have tattoos redone. So Ashley and oh, I just celebrated our here. fifth wedding anniversary. Got um, they're not identical, but they're matching tattoos on our arms. And mine, like the ink, didn't set right. Really? And I, I mean, like We're- this happens. And I talked to the guy, and basically, I it's on my left forearm, and I sleep with my left arm under the pillow. 
So like as I'm sleeping, it's constantly rubbing, which can cause the ink to not set correctly. So I have an appointment next Saturday to go in and basically have him redo the whole tattoo because it's like all the ink is faded already. It looks like it's about 20 years old and I've had it for about a week. So I've heard that the the redoing hurts more the second time. Mm. And I'm not sure whether it's because like the skin is already sensitive or more likely they probably go deeper. Um, because one of the reasons it may not have set is if the tattoo artist doesn't place the ink deep enough. So they have a tendency to go deeper the second time. So that should be real fun. It should be great. I feel like you got to tell everybody what the tattoo is. So the tattoos that we got are those, the words, I love you. And it's, we wrote, wrote it out. So the other person's handwriting is on, on us. So mine looks great because Ashley has amazing, beautiful handwriting that looks like a font, like a computer font and hers. uh, My handwriting looks like a six year old. So it will, (laughs) it will only be a matter of time before someone asks if that was like her, like toddler that wrote that. Yeah, it's she likes it. I like it. I mean, it's I, I really love the idea. Um, it, at first, I didn't really like the idea, but I really warmed up to it. And it's cool because now, like, if something were to ever happen to either one of us in an era where you don't do a lot of writing, like you don't write stuff out that often, you don't write letters to each other, you don't have those kinds of mementos. Um, like we have each other's handwriting forever if something were to happen to one of us. So it's it's very meaningful. Um, it, like I said, we did it to celebrate our um, fifth wedding anniversary, which uh, was in September. So it's pretty cool. I like it. Once it doesn't look like uh, like a half-drawn-on tattoo, I'll, I'll post some pictures. It's pretty touching. It's a great idea. I affirm that. Yeah. What about you? What are you denying? So I'm going after this week insurance, but I'm denying the lack of respect for insurance. Okay. So I know that this is one of those things like anything that can be abused, but here's what I was just realizing this week. So, you know, the the 2010 Haitian earthquake, that was like a 7.0 magnitude that resulted in at least 50,000 deaths. Right. In, in contrast, the magnitude 6.7 earthquake in California in 1994, which that's similarly significant, both in like its proximity to an urban center right. and its effects, it resulted in only 33 deaths. Wow. And the main difference, this is going to sound crazy, but the main difference was insurance, not just like the compensation for damage, but that insurance companies are overseeing building codes generally. So this to me, as I was kind of thinking about this, is just one of those amazing technologies that God has given us, not to reduce his sovereignty or providence, but really as a type of technology of engineering that really helps people. So we should try to get as much insurance into the world as physically possible that is responsible. So I know that's kind of like a totally weird denial, but that's just where I'm at. Yeah, and that's one of those areas where like, you know, in a fallen world, nobody can deny that insurance executives are are driven, at least in part, by like a desire and a lust for money. But at the same time, like God uses that in order to drive a positive outcome, because exactly. if I'm understanding you right, the insurance companies have a vested interest in making sure these buildings stay up and are able to withstand different disasters so they don't have to pay out. And right. in doing that, they improve the quality of the building in order to avoid paying out, and that saves lives. It's the same kind of thing in like the medical insurance industry. Medical insurance companies have a vested interest in improving the health of their patronage, and so they do things that increase the health so that way they don't have to pay out when someone gets sick. But that it creates this like positive feedback loop 
that even though it sort of started from sinful intentions in a lot of cases, it ends up with a positive outcome. Exactly. The technical nerdy term for that, moral hazard. Moral hazard. There we go. We should have like a a weekly non-theological term podcast for you to give us. Yeah, I kind of like that idea. But to your point, this is the kind of thing that leads right back into some good theology because it does. just like the internet or any kind of other business that adds value to people's lives, you're right. Sometimes it starts or gets caught up in all kinds of sinfulness, but there's no doubt that you know, like God gave us the internet as a gift because he's a gracious God. That technology, all that advancement comes from him. Right. So it's mainly about redeeming those things rather than sometimes getting so focused on how they're harmful understanding where they can be used to give him glory. And insurance is, even though it sounds lame, it's one of those things. It really has a major positive impact on people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't, so you, didn't you try to convince me at one point, though, that insurance is basically not all that different than gambling? <laughs> it's, it's really just That's like a, a form whole, of sanctioned gambling. That is a whole nother podcast. Not necessarily like gambling, but I would say that it can be, it, the probabilities involved can be very similar. Yeah. So there's kind of a lack of understanding on both sides, I think. Well, and I, I mean, that just, you know, I, I'm not an insurance agent, so don't take anything I'm really? saying as advice, but you have to be wise about like what kind of insurance you're buying and how right. you're buying it. Um, you know, I, we talked, was it last week that the, the Best Buy thing came up about Best Buy warranties? And like, you know, it was, I used to get in a little bit of trouble because I would tell somebody, you know, you're buying a $20 pair of headphones. It probably doesn't make a lot of sense to buy it like a $10 insurance right. like warranty on it. Or they're not a warranty. It was a service policy, whatever. But it doesn't make a lot of sense to buy that. And my manager would be like, why did you tell him that? And I'm like, because I'm not, I'm not an unethical person. But then at the flip side, you know, you buy a, a $1,500 computer and you buy a $100 insurance policy that's going to last you for three years. That's a totally different calculus. So right. you have to be wise when you're you're looking at any kind of insurance, whether it's, you know, we don't have the liberty anymore in this country to not carry health insurance. But when you have, you know, you have liberty not to carry insurance on a whole host of things, you have to be wise about what you choose to insure and how you choose to insure it. It's all about arithmetic, which you're right about. So if you are purchasing something that you can't readily or easily replace, then it's wise to consider insurance. Where you're right as well with something like Best Buy's, especially if it's a small dollar item, a lot of the times they're selling you insurance as if the item, let's say, fails 50% of the time. That's right. the price they're quoting you. But in reality, the item probably fails something like 5 to 10% of the time. So right. you're usually being overcharged. But that's how insurance works because you're not always paying for replacement. You're paying for peace of mind. So yeah. there's, there's value in there. So yep. I'm glad that we could really get after insurance. Is there any way we can segue that right into sanctification in a really slick Kind of way. Uh, I don't know. There's no way. <laughs> not, not with, uh, not without us spinning off into some sort of heresy that is going to get us uh, addressed on other podcasts of some sort. Well, that could be fun too. That could be fun. So Jesse, as you've as you've alluded to, we're talking about sanctification. So this is the last of our little mini soteriology series, which we did all out of order and with a bunch of gaps. But we're closing out the uh, the episode or the series with sanctification, which I'm very excited about because as, as we talked about in our New Year's episode this year, there's been all sorts of confusion uh, around questions of law and gospel, questions of salvation, questions of God's nature, and all of those things kind of come into play when we're talking about sanctification, right? Even something like theology proper, the, the nature of who God is 
and therefore what he demands of his people and therefore what he provides for his people, that is all related to sanctification. So I'm really excited about this topic and hopefully we can offer something that's edifying and and encouraging to people that are listening. Yeah, me too. I think sanctification is one of those doctrines that's really just completely misunderstood. And it's not for lack of trying, but I think sometimes we think we're so comfortable with it that we understand it, that it actually ends up being the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Jesse, do you know of any like, I don't know, like 17th century documents (laughs) that were designed for children that might give us some insight into, I don't know, what is sanctification? Every week when I know we're going to go to the (laughs) Westminster or to the Shorter Catechism, I look forward to seeing how you're going to, in that particular moment, with some diversity, point us in that direction. So that was just well done. Yes. So question 35 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is, what is sanctification? So Jesse, if you could hit us with the answer to that, that'd be great. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So this is a great, short, concise definition of sanctification. So I know that um, when I was kind of a young Christian, and I would guess your experience is a little bit different because I, I know dad and I know that he's always been sort of oriented towards theological training for not just his children, but for those who sit under his preaching. Um, He does a great job of kind of balancing exegetical verse by verse passages in the sermon um, and then using Bible study or Sunday school or other channels to sort of do some more of that theological doctrinal training. And he actually flips it. So right now, most of our exegetical discussion is happening during Bible study. And we've been in like a mini series over the summer um, with more topical sermons during the the actual service. So your experience was probably different, but my experience as a young Christian, I had never even heard the word sanctification other than like when it comes in a Bible passage and you hear about being sanctified or set apart. Um, and, and so to me, this was just a foreign concept. Um, and, and I didn't understand and exactly know what the term meant. So it's really helpful. And this just underscores the importance of utilizing something like the Westminster Shorter Catechism in your family worship, in your own personal devotions. Um, you know, when, when I get someone who's kind of new to the study of theology and they ask me what they should start with, um, I usually say, go read the Westminster Shorter Catechism before you, before you pick up core Christianity by, you know, by uh, Horton, or before you even think about something like Bovink or Voss, go to the Westminster Shorter Catechism and read through it in order because it actually sets apart a whole system of doctrine in a logical order, the same way that a a systematic theology would. And so this for me is just really a good place for us to start because it is such a good, clear definition. And it hits on all of the major like components of where I think people get confused about sanctification in a way that I think is extremely helpful. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those great little succinct explanations that I think if you even went to any really qualified contemporary reformed theologian said, give me a definition of sanctification. I don't, I'd think anybody would be hard pressed to come up with something that was better and just as brief. So yeah. that, to your point, it's, this is a really great thing to kind of look at because the catechism seems like sometimes it's for children, and that is true, but it's basically for all God's children because we can never really outgrow or graduate from this kind of truth. And 
if you memorize it, which I know we've both kind of been endeavoring to do in different ways, this keeps it like top of mind when you're having discussions with somebody, yeah. a Christian or not, and you're really trying to explain a concept as complicated in some ways as sanctification is, because it's throughout the whole of God's counsel, we see this kind of thread woven in. So it's kind of hard off the cuff to just say, okay, so what does it mean to be sanctified? And because it's so important and so broad in some ways, it's really easy to kind of fall into error when somebody asks you that without a guidepost. And this is a really good guidepost. So in terms of like this definition, what strikes you? You said there was a lot of stuff that's misunderstood. We've kind of both gone that way in terms of this conversation. What are one of the things that you think is crystal clear here that helps clarify errors in kind of just general perception of sanctification? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think we've we've harped on um, many times uh, and people who've listened to the show will recognize this line of thinking is that sanctification is sometimes in um, in evangelical circles, broad evangelical circles especially, but even in, in reform circles, sanctification is often treated as though at the very most, it's God's work partially. And then it's also our work partially. So, you know, you get into discussions about monergism versus synergism and whether that's even the right terminology for this discussion. And all of that aside... It's a very common misunderstanding that sanctification is something that we, at least in part, produce in ourselves. And so right off the bat in here, this is saying sanctification is the work of God's free grace. So it's, it's um, it's not the case that the catechism is saying... You know, this is this is a cooperative venture where the two of you work together, God and the sinner work together to produce a result. They just lay it all out there and say, this is a work of God's free grace. And the other thing that I think, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about the difference between kind of positional or de- definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. But the, the catechism here is using the phrase work in contrast to the prior questions, which use the word act. So justification and adoption, which we've talked about, are both forensic categories that involve an, an act of God in a moment in time. It's it's established. It happens. It, it doesn't have a duration to it. One moment you're justified. You're not justified. The next moment you are justified. One moment you're not a son or daughter of God. The next moment you are a son or daughter of God. But in using the word work, versus the word act in this question, we see that the the Westminster Catechism is establishing that sanctification is a process that takes time. It's not the case um, that the entirety of sanctification is accomplished in a moment in time. And I think that's another thing that sometimes some, some traditions get wrong is they treat sanctification in sort of the same way they understand justification and adoption um, if they talk about adoption at all as that it happens in a moment in time. And then everything after that is kind of like the unfolding of that reality. For sure. What about you? Yeah, what think, do you think are some ways that it's been misunderstood? Well, I think that's like the primary way. I mean, we've, we've also spoken before about how we can sometimes in sanctification kind of import or smuggle in these different classes of people right. or saints. So we talked about higher life theology before. So I think that's also a problem. But you're right. I think we need to understand when we think of sanctification, the difference between the fact that God works both immediately and immediately. So the immediate workings of God are, of course, when he makes use of some kind of secondary means, and they operate according to fixed laws, which God has purposed for them. And that's the ordinary providence of God. 
But the immediate workings of God are when he does not remain within those limited powers of secondary means. And so instead of using just the natural abilities of his created beings and things, he acts directly to affect his will. And some of that, I think, is embodied in sanctification. Yeah. So in sanctification, the Holy Spirit is using the inspired word, prayer, the encouragement of other believers, uh, outward circumstances as a means, but the effectual power which conforms us to Christ that is due to his supernatural work. Right. And the way that I've really been convicted about that is even fallen man may be totally motivated to change evil habits because of guilt or danger or to gain respect of others or to advance in power, wealth, or pleasure. So we can't just say, well, sanctification is the, the passive process by which God does something, but then I pick up all the pieces and I follow after him. Because the regenerated soul alone is enabled to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit towards sanctification. But even that cooperation is a work of grace, which is so eloquently said in the catechism. It's not a shared ability. It's not like a partnership. It's not 50-50. It's not 99%, 1%. Grace produces the faith and the obedience flows from that. Right. It's only cooperative in that both the person and the spirit are active. And that, I think, is something we need to push forward as the distinguishing. That's what we mean. I think you and I mean when we talk about it being cooperative. Yeah. And and so that might be a good thing for us to just touch on is, you know, th- this is a kind of a perennial question that comes up in, in online social media. And and everybody has kind of their, their theologian they point to that justifies or supports their particular position. And what can be difficult at times is that the language, particularly of like synergism or cooperation, which is just one of those words comes from the Greek roots. One of them comes from the Latin roots, but they mean the exact same thing. Right. Um, it's funny. I was having a conversation with somebody and I said, well, it sounds like you're you're saying that monergism or that um, sanctification is synergistic. He's like, no, I wouldn't say synergistic. I'd just say cooperative. And I was like, you know, those mean literally exactly <laughs> the same thing, right? He's like, no, right. no, 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 no. And I was like, no, no, like cooperate, cooperate. Anyway, um, right. but what I think is the reason for this, why we have some classic reform theologians who will talk about um, sanctification as though it's synergistic and some classical reform theologians who will say, absolutely not. God's God's working entirely in sanctification and we don't supply anything to that. Um, you know, to me, I read the Westminster catechisms, the confession, and, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the confession here, but it seems to me really clear from the, the, Westminster tradition that it considers sanctification to be entirely God's work that right. we, we don't contribute anything to it. But there are those in the Westminster tradition who speak as though we are. And, and um, Jim Stevenson, um, who is an OPC pastor, who is one of the reform pub admins. Um, we'll put a link to his sermon audio feed. Um, he just has great stuff. He's preaching through the catechism or through the confession as well. Um, but he, he made the point that, um, the problem is that different figures are are saying different things using the same words. So we may have one figure who's saying, yes, um, you know, sanctification is a cooperative interest where we are active in sanctification. And so we, we are participating in, in sanctification along with God. But what they mean is, Rather than contrasting, you know, they're contrasting it to justification where we are entirely passive. 
It's not even just that we don't contribute anything to justification. We don't do anything in justification. There's no response to justification. There's no outflow of action of justification. There's nothing that accompanies justification on our part. Even if you're not talking about us contributing to it, it's not the case that like, well, you know, we, the judge puts his gavel down and we have to stand up and walk out of the courtroom. Well, no, when the judge puts his gavel down, you can sit in the courtroom all you want, but you're still justified. You're still not guilty. Even if you continue to wear your, your criminal's clothing, you're still not guilty. So some people contrasting it to that are meaning, uh, meaning something more like the Holy Spirit sanctifies you. And as a result of that sanctification, you are active and you are moving forward in right. that sanctification. Um, what I don't see anyone meaning that I've read in the Reformed tradition is that we actually contribute a part of the energy, right? That's the the second part of the word synergy is energy. It, it comes from the Greek word um, energos, which is like work or um, action or something like that. Um, I don't see anybody saying that we in part sanctify ourselves. We in part make ourselves holy. Um, now, the Roman Catholic Church would absolutely say that God supplies grace and then we use that grace in a way that actually generates holiness. It generates real holiness and merit on our part that then becomes a part of us. But I haven't right. seen any Reformed thinkers that are saying that. So I think we have to be really careful and intentional with our terms. Um, when Jesse and I say synergism, we're talking about that second part. We're talking about a situation where we actually cooperate with God in a way where we're contributing and we are in part uh, efficient causes for whatever the outcome is. So when we say that sanctification is not synergistic, what we're saying is that in no way does the human agent who is being sanctified contribute efficient causality to that sanctification. Right. And I think that's where it's good to be reminded. I think you've already said this, that the word, the words to sanctify means to set something apart in a special way. Right. So to say that there's a synergy involved in that would be that somehow with what we do, our acting on our own behavior somehow sets us apart. And it's good the scripture does not make that part of what sanctification is. So, you know, that setting apart, it's either done by designating something for special use or by actually making it special by changing its nature. Right. And once you consider it that definition appropriately, then I think it does become clear, at least it should become clear, that what we're saying is the whole the full agency of sanctification belongs to God. Uh, you know, things are declared to be special or sanctified because of their assignment to some special use or purpose. And in the sense of mere designation without actual purification, there is a category, you know, where Jesus said he was sanctified by the Father and sent into the world. And certainly Jesus didn't need to be made holy or purified, but he was sent forth to a special task, which was his incarnation. You know, when we're talking about sanctification of the believer, the word is usually intended in the second sense where there's an actual moral transformation. Right. So we're not merely set apart as by special designation. We're also changed to become more and more free from personally sinning. So that's probably a good segue into the Westminster, right? Because I think yeah. there it kind of fleshes out more of what that means. Yeah. Before we go there, though, I just want to read a little bit out of Romans 8. So one of the things that has vexed me as a Reformed thinker for a very long time um, is the fact that sanctification does not appear as a discrete step in the golden chain, right? So I'm just going to read it. Um, 
But I'm going to start in verse 26 here. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And here's here's where the, the chain starts. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So it's always vexed me a little bit that um, the, the sanctification does not appear as a discrete step, right? It should nestle in there in verse 30, right between justified and glorified, but it's not there. But in some of these discussions that I've been having, um, you know, with Patrick Hines and and guys from Thorn Crown over at Protestant Witness, all these guys in this John Piper stuff, you know, I've gone back to this passage several times. And the reason I started at verse 26 is because, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, right? So right. There's, there's the hint for me that the Spirit is doing something active here. Obviously, the Spirit applies all the benefits of salvation to us. But what I didn't really realize, and this ties into what you were just saying, is in verse 28, those who are called, right? how are they called? Why are they called? According to his purpose. So you right. could read this in a sense as saying, and, those, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for his good. For those who are set apart according to his purpose or who are sanctified according to his purpose. So it's, it's not, it's not. You know, in biblical studies, we have to be careful because we do want to we want to look at the words that are on the page, right? Every word is inspired. It's not the concepts that are inspired. But we also have to recognize that just because a particular word is not present, it does not mean that the concept is not present. Exactly. So so this whole idea, this whole idea of being set apart for God's purposes, being called according to his purposes, and for those purposes being conformed to the image of the, of the Son— you know, like we said last week when we we're talking about justification, in some senses, sanctification and glorification are the ends of justification, right? We're not legally declared righteous merely for the sake of escaping penalty, but we're declared righteous so that we might be conformed to the image of his son, which on this side of death is the process of sanctification. It's an increasing conformity to the image of, of, of Christ. And then after death, um, you know, our spirits are glorified or our spirits are brought into glory and perfected. And then glorification happens upon the resurrection where we're reunited with our bodies. And at that point, we've been reunited with our with a resurrection body that is perfect and is in exactly perfect in the image of, of Christ, the resurrected Christ. So, sanctification is sort of the the underlying current and the purpose for the entire golden chain here. Even, so even though it doesn't appear as a distinct step in the golden chain, it's sort of the thread that it's, it's the gold of the entire chain, right? It's the whole, the whole process is driving towards the goal of sanctification and glorification. So yeah, it says if Paul is saying there, You've been given a purpose, so get after that purpose, exactly. which is, I think, where we're talking about cooperating in that sense. Be about that purpose. So, like we said when we talked about justification, if righteousness proceeds from justification, then sanctification proceeds from that righteousness. Right. So, Jesus, of course, took on the deserved penalty so that the sinner could be forgiven without violating justice. 
And also the holy life of Jesus is credited to the believers that God views them as innocent before his divine court. So as a result of that, kind of what Paul is saying here is, the believer wants to thank God for that grace by living an obedient obedient life. So once our fellowship with God is restored by Christ, there's an interchange that takes place. Our sin is no longer defended. We begin to want to live obediently. But still, that's the first act. The first cause is always God himself. But we cooperate that because we want to be about that purpose. So I agree with you. I think embedded in there, we find sanctification everywhere, which almost gives more credence to how beautiful and deep and required it is yeah. that we do participate in it. Yeah, absolutely. So if you want to go ahead and roll straight into um, chapter 13, article one of the Westminster Confession, we can kind of step into the next phase of our discussion. Let's do it. They who are once effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart and a new spirit created in them, are further sanctified, really and personally, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, by his word and his spirit indwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified, and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Yeah, so this is another one of those crisp, concise definitions that um, the Westminster, you know, we talked last week about the the Heidelberg Catechism and how it's kind of warm and pastoral in, in a way that's very useful, but is very different than the Westminster. And the Westminster here is great because of its precision and its technicality. Right. So just to give some um, further kind of context. If you look at question 31 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is what is effectual calling? It says effectual calling is the work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds and the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills. He doth persuade us and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. And so what we have to understand here, um, and, and in the end of question 30, it says uniting us to our Christ or to Christ in our effectual calling. So, so our effectual calling, we have to, we have to remember that we're, we, we can talk about the ordo salutis in temporal terms, right? The actual way that it flows out in, in time. And then we also have to talk about it in logical terms. So in right. logical terms, there's this kind of progression, right? You're, you're effectually called in your effectual calling, you're granted faith. As a result of that faith, you're, um, you are justified, um, as a result of that faith, but after justification, you're sanctified, right? So we can parse these out in terms of steps and, and sequence. But in terms of time, how this actually happens in life, all of this happens in an instant, right? We're, we're regenerated and granted faith in an instant. And the moment we have faith, we are united to Christ, justified, definitively sanctified, um, and, and you know in union with him. So where I'm going with that, though, is that we have to understand that this union with Christ produces this sanctification, right? It's not the case that, you know, sanctification flows out of justification, right? It, right. it comes after saint justification uh, logically, but it flows from our union with Christ. And, you know, I'm reading um, the whole Christ. I'm going through it a second time. And he makes the point um, that he compares John Bunyan's um you know, his visual ordo salutis with William Perkins visual ordo salutis. And he makes the point on the William Perkins one that there is a, a spine right down the middle that everything connects to. 
And everything that that spine has is related to the way Christ is united with us. It shows how all of the all of the benefits of salvation come out of our union with Christ. Whereas Bunyan's is much more of a step-by-step such that it actually kind of separates the benefits of salvation from Christ in a sense. That that sanctification comes from justification and then such and such comes from sanctification and something comes from that and something comes from that and then glorification comes from that. But it is in Christ, and as this article says, through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, by his word and spirit dwelling in them, that the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. Right. So, so sanctification is the, the definitive um, finalized, you know, the freedom from sin, the setting apart for holy purposes. That happens and is, is done with. It's, it's finished in Christ. So as long as we're in union with Christ, we are, we are sanctified in a sense. But that flows into other actions that come out of it. So we have to recognize there's kind of this progression. There's, there's the moment of sanctification. And in a sense, we can say that we are sanctified, and we'll get to this in the next one, but the whole body of sin is destroyed. The several lusts thereof are weakened and mortified more and more, right? We um, we are strengthened and quickened in this practice of holiness and all saving grace. Those things are real and they are ours the moment that we're in union with Christ. Right. Because of who Christ is and because of the fact that his spirit comes to dwell in us at the moment of salvation, the moment of justification, the moment of union with Christ, the spirit is ours, that seal is delivered. That, that aspect of sanctification is ours because Christ is ours. Right. I mean, a, a person who is justified by the application of the work of Jesus Christ is declared to be morally innocent judicially. So we've got that forensic piece we spoke about before and also the positional piece. What I like, though, about this in the Westminster is it lets us know that there is a journey to be had here and that it should be progressive. I can think of another word, almost cumulative, I guess. Right. That there is the sense where marginally on the fringes, we should be continued to put to death sin by the power of God himself. So it's as if, I mean, I think that all of this, what's great about the Westminster Confession is it kind of kicks you in the face a little bit. Like when we get into articles two and three here, yep. we're going to get kind of punched in the neck because what I like is it basically says there should be a fire in your belly over right. this. And that does, all these things belong to you in Christ already. And so change things, act in a changed way. That's right. just how things are. If once you make wine, you can't unmake wine. It's now something totally different. So, you know, at the same time that Christ says, yeah, positionally you were sanctified, at that same moment, in no way are we rendered like fully free from sin in our thoughts and our right. words and our deeds. So this is where it's almost as if in his graciousness, he provided a way to fight, to move forward as if we go to war, but the bullets and the materials and the resources and the clothing and the boots, those are all supplied by God himself. Or maybe like a better me- biblical metaphor would just be the armor of God, <laughs> putting right. that on. Is supplied by God Himself. Yeah. And yet there is a participation for us. And and that's really in Articles two and three. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead and read Articles two and three? So Article two reads This sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life, there abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In Article three, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet 
through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Boom. Yeah. There's so no boom in the original. The, that was the way maybe there was. There could have been. Um, <laughs> the, you know, there was like cannon fire that could usually be heard in the background of the Westminster Seriously? Assembly. Yeah, they, they talk about that, how like, um, I don't remember. It must have been Sinclair Ferguson. He talks about how like the war was going on and there was times where like they, they comment in the minutes about how like they had to wait because they couldn't hear each other because of cannon fire. I love um, that. So maybe boom was in the original. I love, um, I'm going to start using hashtag cannon fire instead of boom. Can, instead of shots fired, it'll be cannon yeah, fire. Yeah, I love that. Um, so here's the way that I think about this chapter. This has been a really helpful analogy for me, and I'm building on um, some of the some of the things that Sinclair Ferguson um, lays out in the book Devoted to God. He makes the point that devoted to God for evangelicals usually refers to our devotion to God. But scripturally speaking, if something is devoted to God, what it actually means is God has claimed it for his purposes. Right. right. So the the, right. the special instruments in the temple are devoted to God. So that gives us a kind of a whole new range of understanding when Paul says there are some instruments or some vessels that are made for honorable purposes and there are some that are made for dishonorable purposes. Right? He's talking about election, but ultimately that election is to a sanctified purpose. It's to a particular holy use on God's part. And so Article 1 here is talking about that setting us aside for holy purposes. So we are we are set aside in a sense we are placed on the holy shelf, right? The shelf that the holy influence go. And now now that we're set apart, now God has to use us for those purposes. So in, in the temple, they would set apart these instruments, these golden or bronze instruments, right? So they would sit there waiting to be used. But then there's still the moment where the priest has to go and pick it up and bring it out to, to do the sacrifice. So this first part is the positional or definitive sanctification that we experience. And two and three, that has to do with, in the analogy, the priest actually picking us up and using us for a holy purpose. So the good works that flow out of our sanctification are equivalent to the vessel actually being used. Right. And so where the strength of that analogy is, is that nowhere in that process can the bull say, well, I contributed to the fact that I was used for sacrifice today. It's not as though the bowl is somehow responsible for the fact that the priest picked him up and you know put the blood in him and brought him into the Holy of Holies, but the bowl still had to be there in order for that to happen. So, so verse two, I mean, this is why I look at this and I don't, I don't understand how anybody can actually apply the term synergism um, unless they're meaning something very different than what we normally mean when we say synergism is this sanctification is throughout in the whole man. Well, okay. So it's not a partial sanctification. Well, if it's not a partial sanctification, then how can we say we're contributing to it? If it's already kind of like completed in a sense before we even get to the get to the party, then how could we say we're we're participating or we're contributing to that? But then it's imperfect in this life. So the the Westminster divines here they do such a great job of explaining exactly that reality that that sanctification happens. It's not as though God only does part of the job, but sanctification because of the very nature of what it is takes time. I mean, I suppose God could have done it in an instant. He could have changed us in an instant, but in his wisdom, he's chosen not to. Right. And so he, he sanctifies us in a way that is not complete. The, the process is, um, is ongoing. 
And so the, the remnants of our corruption take time to be worked out. And so that rolls straight into Article 3, where this remaining corruption, sometimes it seems really strong. But then we go back here and it says through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ. So it's not the case, as some theologians will point out, that this definitive sanctification is entirely God's work. But then the work of progressing in sanctification that we in part or sometimes in whole, um, that that's us, right? The kind of the Keswick theology, the higher life theology would say, well, God does the initial step, but then it's your responsibility to walk on the rest, you know, walk the rest of it out. Um. It's not the case that that's what's going on. So both the initial step of sanctification, the initial um, definitive or positional sanctification that occurs, that's God's work. But then also everything that's necessary to progress in sanctification is also provided by God, by his spirit. There's this tendency, I think, sometimes to let sanctification take too long, if if that's possible for me to say, in the sense that when we think about sanctification as primarily in a passive sense that, well, God is going to do some things in my life and he's going to bring me in some circumstances and hopefully maybe fingers crossed, I'll be a little bit more patient, might be a little bit more kind. Maybe I'll put aside the sin, give it enough time. And what the divines say here basically is they remind us like, no, this is a battle. All who are redeemed struggle with sin in this life and everybody progresses differently. And there's no simple and quick solution to our struggle. So instead of trying to explain away the battle, we should just learn how to fight. And I think what they're saying here is fight under the power of the Holy Spirit. And I like what you said, because I think they're so focused on giving us what is practical and pastoral and real here that they're, you know, they're referencing all of the scripture and what they write. And it's important to realize that in the conflict that even Paul describes, you know, it involves these lapses into a particular sin, even when one believes that he has been victorious over that sin. And so that shows that the process of sanctification is not a steady upward slope, but yeah. it's this jagged slope with that sometimes moves in the negative direction. But right. overall, it should show this continuing general upward trend. And even that is God being so good to us because who we are is largely a fact of the pain and the struggle which we have experienced in life. That really is what defines us. It's not the pleasure, but it's really the pain. And so this is both a way of continuing to grow our faith, as James says, but also being able to count it all joy when we struggle in all different kinds of ways, taking a hold of the gift that God has given us, being about that purpose, even when it's the most difficult to do that, because purpose is easy when everything comes easy to us. But when it doesn't, that's when there really is a real test of our faith. And so sanctification is a great gift, not just in that we get all of the spiritual blessings through Jesus Christ, but that we get to participate in the battle alongside standing shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters and representing Christ, flying his banner in the midst of that struggle. I mean, that's really well said by the divines. Yeah. You know, I'm going to have to just nerd out here for a second. So let's do that. We like, we haven't been doing that already. You already spoke about Greek. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm flipping gears to different kind of nerding out though. So that, that just reminds me of the, you know, um, Avengers Infinity War, right? So spoiler alert, I'm not going to give away any major plot points, but spoiler alert, uh, anyone who hasn't seen it, um, I'm sure you've heard all about everything at this point anyways. But there's a scene where two of the characters are just getting worked. They're just getting worked over, right? Um, just totally, it looks like they're going to get killed. Everything is is looking dark. And there's this moment where then all of a sudden, everybody kind of looks off to the side and there's like a train passing by. And um, 
you see like a figure through the windows and then the train passes by and Captain America is standing there and it's the first time he shows up on the scene and then all of a sudden the tide changes the battle changes completely and now the bad guys are the ones that are getting trumped up and and in in a real real sense right the the holy spirit shows up and this unwinnable battle that we we had no hope of winning we had no hope there was no chance we were going to make it through this all of a sudden there is now no chance that we're not going to make it through it. Amen. And and that's that was the beauty of that scene for me. I mean, it, like I said, I'm I'm just a total Marvel comic nerd, but the beauty of that scene was that um one of the characters has an infinity gem in this scene. And and you're thinking, "Oh my goodness, this is going to be the beginning of the cascade of of Thanos getting the infinity gems and they're going to kill this guy and they're going to take the gem and it's going to be all over from here." And then there's this sigh of relief when Captain America shows up. Because you know that that's not happening. You know that that's not going to be what goes down. And that's exactly, in a sense, that's exactly what we see here when we talk about sanctification. Is that prior to the Spirit's effectual calling, we we are lost in our sins. We are lost in the state of sin and misery, to use the, the confessional language. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit shows up and he gives us faith and he unites us to Christ. And now, let's go kick some tail. Right. Let's yeah, go get right. at it. Right on. And let's get it done. And and although we know that there's going to be ups and downs, there's going to be points that we win and points that we lose, we know that the end result is secure. Because for all those who are called according to his purpose, who are set apart and sanctified for his use, those he knew he predestined, and those he predestined. He called, and those he called, he justified, and those he called, he glorified. And the fact that those are all in the past tense is significant because the finality of the past tense of the first part of the chain determines the finality of the past tense of the last part of the chain. And for me, that's just is really what it's about. And that's that's why I harp so much on the fact that sanctification has to be the work of God because it can't be my work or I'm going to screw it up. Right. Even even after uh, the spirit regenerates me, I'm still going to screw it up. So if it depends on me, I'm I'm done for. There's no way I'm going to make it through if it depends on me. But the beauty of the gospel is that it's not only in justification that it doesn't depend on me. It's not only in adoption that it doesn't depend on me. It's also in sanctification that it doesn't depend on me. And because in sanctification it doesn't depend on me, ultimately in resurrection and glorification it does not depend on me. And that, to me, is really where this all comes together. Right on. There was a lot about that Avengers metaphor that I did not understand. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The jewels part. But but aside from that, yeah, I think that's a pretty good comparison. Because the believer has the power of the living Savior at work in him to enable him to do what is truly God-honoring. And I like where where you're going with that. Because... There's just this idea that, you know, to say it's synergistic means in some way that where I'm at is because of who I am, but who I am is darn awful. Yeah. So, and, and really prone to error. And so that's a problem then, because we have the assurance that when we sin, our guilt is paid for and grace overwhelms us. And while we will do battle all our lives to grow to be more Christ-like, Yet, at the same time, we cannot lose forgiveness and the new birth that has come by God's grace because it's by God's grace. So the remains of sin 
are not the chains of sin is the way yeah. I think about it. And that is an amazing reality. Yeah. Well, um, we had other stuff planned, but we got going on uh, everything and we ran out of time. So um, We got going on everything. On I like everything. That. Yeah. So, Jesse, why don't you tell, since we've got a question cast coming up, why don't you uh, give the phone number and email address and we can uh, get some questions for next time. Yeah. So you, you guys, if you've been listening, you know the drill. We love to get other people's voices in the conversation because that's what the brotherhood's all about. So please consider leaving a voicemail with a question on the phone number that is, worst build up ever to the phone number, 607-444-2767. Great. And we also have uh, brand new Reform Brotherhood email addresses, which we have had people make use of. So you can email jesse at reformbrotherhood.com or tony at reformbrotherhood.com. Or if you want to send in a question uh, via email, you can send that into info at reformbrotherhood.com. And as we say, we do privilege the voicemails, but uh, we do read every email and we, uh, we do our best to send back quick responses if we can to those as well. Yeah, it's not just a logical order. It is like an actual order. First yeah. voicemail, then emails. Yep, exactly. So to close out, I just we, we wanted to talk a little bit about this, but I think we actually touched on everything that we were going to talk about anyways. So I just want to close out by reading question 77 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Um, Bob Godfrey, who was formerly the president of Westminster Seminary California, and now he's the chairman of uh, Legionary Ministries, just a, a saint of epic proportions. Um, he is a uh, three forms of unity guy, but he actually goes to the Westminster Larger Catechism when he wants to address this topic, which tells you something about the precision in it. And it says, wherein do justification and sanctification differ? And the answer is, although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ in that God in justification imputeth the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, his spirit infuseth grace and enable to the exercise thereof. In the former, sin is pardoned. In the other, it is subdued. In the one doth equally free all believers from their revenging wrath of God, and that perfectly in this life, that they never fall into condemnation. The other is neither equal in all, nor in this life perfect in any, but growing up to perfection. So, Cannon twin fire. benefits. Yeah, twin benefits. Um, they're, they're both gifts from God. Um, but they're different, and we have to recognize that they're different. Yes. So um, take take a little bit of time, read Romans 8, go take a look at the catechism. Um, we hope this has been really helpful. Um, we may we may come back and try to do some more episodes on uh, glorification and some of that other, other parts of this process, but th- this mini-series is officially concluded. Uh, we will have, uh, like I said, we'll put a post up that has like the right order to, to listen to them in because we did it out of order. But um, we've really enjoyed um, kind of going through this a little bit. And hopefully it's been uh, helpful for you. So, Tony. <laughs> Major <laughs> I was pause. expecting an actual verbal response. There, so, Jesse. I, I suppose that's good enough. Until next time, get after your purpose. Honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. Uh.